Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to Wannabe, the podcast that takes you from where you are now to where you want to be in 30 minutes or less. I'm Imriel Morgan founder of Content is Queen, a podcast community committed to amplifying diverse voices. Want to unleash your voice? Visit contentisqueen.org to discover our creator community and how we can take your podcast to the next level. Back to Wannabe. Season six is all about women in sport and fitness. Today, we're incredibly lucky to have Aisha McGowan with us. Aisha's not just any cyclist. She's the first African-American woman pro-road cyclist. Her journey is the epitome of passion, starting from her days as a preschool music teacher to being a commuter cyclist in college, and now a groundbreaking professional in the sport. In today's episode, we'll uncover Aisha's transition from cycling to work to dominating races. We'll also dive into the importance of representation in cycling and Aisha's initiative, A Quick Brown Fox, which aims to empower women of colour in the sport. You don't want to miss this illuminating conversation, so let's get into it. Who did you want to be before you became who you are today and why? I guess I wanted to be the happiest version of myself almost there (laughs) what does that look like what did you think that looked like I don't know that I have that answer even now I think there are things that I enjoy and things that I don't enjoy and I guess it looks like doing the things I enjoy and not the things I don't enjoy but unfortunately that's not how life works that's not how life works unfortunately (laughs) (laughs) in terms of your quest to be the happiest version what other things you mentioned things that you like doing things you don't like doing what are some of the things that you like doing I really like riding bikes but sometimes I don't feel like it so I guess the happiest version of me would be able to ride the bike whenever I felt like it and then not have to when I don't which means that being a pro cyclist is not a good idea (laughs) being able to help others I really enjoy doing things for other people especially black people and people of color something you mentioned earlier was like wanting to ride the bike when you want to ride it and not riding when you don't want to ride it under what circumstances would you be riding and not wanting to what is the process of becoming a pro cyclist in the first place but also like I guess because you're doing it professionally you will have moments where you just don't feel like it because it's work rather than for fun is that a correct assumption I'm very fair weather so I don't want to (laughs) ride when it's cold I don't want to ride when it's raining I don't want to ride when I am sad or super tired or just in a generally bad mood. (laughs) Sometimes I want to do nothing. And the process of training is consistency. You have to show up consistently to make any sort of progress and, you know, get anywhere. And so I can't not ride when those things happen. And it's not a huge deal, but the happiest version of myself doesn't have to do those things. Yeah. (laughs) 
I am a commuter cyclist, have been for like four years now. And so I completely hear you on being a fair weather cyclist. See, I feel like when I started as a commuter, the first year I was super fair weather. And then it became this like hardcore thing where I was like, I've run no matter what. And so <laughs> like I would do the most to like counteract the cold or the rain or the snow or the whatever was going on. I'm not her anymore, <laughs> but <laughs> I do recall being like, I'm not going to punk out because it's too cold. But I was I was fighting the feeling. I, I don't think at that point I accepted that. I just... I don't like the cold and that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I have not got the right attire to actually do cycling in all conditions, but I still do it anyway because I'm a bit like you. I'm just like, I'm going to cycle anyway because I like yeah, it. Just, <laughs> I, just I, it. I like the cycle more than I like whatever's going on around me. But I guess to go back to you being pro and showing up consistently, in terms of that transition from going from commuting and just doing it for fun and then turning pro, like what was that process? And... What sparked the interest in taking it to the next level? It was a long process, actually. I started commuting in 2007 and I didn't start competing in a formal way until like 2014. So it was a, a seven year journey from riding a bike to get to class to now I'm competing on a velodrome or in a road race. I didn't even know it was a thing I could do. I don't think most people know much about bike racing, especially in the States. It's not really one of our staple sports. And so I was riding a bike, but I never thought I could race a bike in that way. It didn't seem achievable or accessible, nor did I take any effort to figure out how to make it so. And just being within the cycling community for seven years, I just naturally gained more information and more knowledge about what was out there. I explored cycling in many different forms. I started as a commuter and then I got into advocacy and started doing like street racing. I was a messenger for a very short time. Being a fair weather cyclist is not <laughs> at all compatible with being a bike messenger <laughs> at all. And then when I graduated from college and immediately moved to Brooklyn when I was done with school and got into more advocacy there. But then there was also like a very rich bike scene of just young people having fun on bikes and doing fun things. Mm -hmm. And I got really into that. And like, I would go to work during the day and like stay out all night riding with friends. Oh, wow. <laughs> it felt very like, this is New York. <laughs> it was really silly, but I had a lot of fun uh, and eventually found a group that was doing clinics, trying to like get more women into cycling called mm -hmm. We Bike NYC. And they were hosting a ride to the velodrome so you could do a track clinic. Oh, wow. And the velodrome in New York is in Queens, a casino. And there's no easy way to get there. That barrier of like, how do I get there was conquered by having a group willing to lead the mm -hmm. way. And mm -hmm. so I rode with them to the velodrome, did the track clinic. And then at the end of the clinic, they were like, yeah, now you can just race. And I was like, no, I'm pretty sure that's not how it works. It's totally how it works. <laughs> oh, wow. But for me, I was like, no. Mm -mm. And so it took me another year and another track clinic to like really start racing on the velodrome. What is a track clinic? Like, what do you do there? They went over all the basics. It was how to start the different races work because track racing, there's like, it's actually very, very cool. But there's a bunch of different kinds of races you can do on the track. There are mm -hmm. shorter races. There are longer races. They have races where you can be eliminated if you 
cross the line last. They do that each lap until there's only like, I think two or three people left and then they sprint it out for the win. And then they have the opposite version of that. It's called a win and out. If you cross the line first on the first lap, then you're done. And then they do that until there's however many people left. It's cool. It's really dynamic, super engaging, very short. Great if you have ADD. me they just taught you everything they taught you how to pin a number on a jersey oh wow that is everything (laughs) like how the officials worked I believe they also like let you borrow a bike if you don't have one I think I borrowed one from my now husband it was a little too big for me but it was fine so yeah it was a great experience and the second time I had already decided I was going to get into racing because of the Red Hook crit. So Red Hook is a place in, in Brooklyn. It is a location. Sure. Okay. Um, and crit sense. is short for criterium, which is usually a form of road racing. And so the road bikes, you have the skinny tires, you have brakes. It's like the traditional Tour de France type of racing. But a criterium is a short loop. It's like a circuit. In America, it's usually less than, the circuit is usually less than a mile and you just go around and around and around and around. But we were doing these on bikes that were meant for the velodrome. So you have essentially what is a road bike, but there's only one gear. So you can't like change gears and there's no brakes, but you're in the street, just like a road criterion. But yeah, the main type of riding I was doing at the time, I was on a single speed fixed gear bike that I was commuting on, riding around the city, having fun, whatever. And they decided they were going to have a women's field for the first time at the Red Hook Crit. And the Red Hook Crit started as a birthday party, I believe, where like a couple of friends got together through this race and they just kept doing it year after year. And it eventually grew to be huge. And so they decided they're going to have the women's field at the Red Hook Crit in Brooklyn. And I said, okay. I'm in a women's empowerment. I'm going to do it. I'm fast and I am excited. I could totally do this. And so I decided I was going to train. Didn't know what that looked like. Didn't know what that meant. I built a track bike from the ground up. I bought my, like, we got a frame. I got picked out wheels and gearing and pedals and like all the pieces. And it was like a really cool experience. And I built a race bike and I was really excited about it. And then the race rolled around. It was freezing cold and pouring rain. (laughs) All of my favorite things. (laughs) And that day went horribly. Uh, It was a horrible, horrible time. But the energy and the excitement outweighed the horrible time that I had. And so I was like, man, I don't know what is going on. And that was a big problem today. So I need to figure that out. And so I signed up for the track clinic, signed up for a road clinic, just was like, I need to learn. That's Mm -hmm. the solution to this problem. And so I did, I learned and quickly got much better at it and started winning road races and track races and decided I was pretty good at it. And it made me feel really nice to be good at it. And so I went looking to see, okay, who's been pro that is, you know, a black woman, an African-American woman, because I have never heard about this sport. I don't know anything about it. And As far as I know, I see mostly white people here. (laughs) (laughs) I lived in New York City, and I think the most Black women I competed with at one time was two. Wow. And that didn't make any sense to me. And so I, you know, I was looking, and there had been a few Black women who had raced on an international level, but none of them were American. Mm. The exception being a Jamaican-American woman who did race for a professional team, but rode for Jamaica. So yeah, I was like, man, well, that's silly. It's 2014, 2015, whatever year it was. And I was like, well, I'll just do it. Nice. <laughs> Again. I love that. No clue <laughs> what it was I was going to do or what I was signing up for. But I was like, yeah, I can do that. Sure. <laughs> but I love that. That's just like seeing a gap and being like, 
I can feel that spot. And it's not that you're going in with like an arrogance or like a false sense of confidence. Like you had been doing it and you sought help (laughs) when you needed help and you wanted to learn more and you followed that curiosity until you're like, I feel good enough. And can you describe what that felt like? That moment of knowing or that point where you're like, I actually do feel like I'm ready now. I think it was a lot of ignorance, to be honest. (laughs) I'm really good at making big decisions and really bad at making small ones. And so... (laughs) For me, (laughs) deciding to become a professional cyclist didn't seem like a a big decision at all. It was just like, oh, this is something I'm going to do. Like, for me, that's easier than deciding what to have for lunch, which I know sounds absolutely insane, Mm. but I promise I'm not exaggerating. Did you have any expectations around the lifestyle change that was going to happen when you made that decision? So like how you were going to earn money or I guess like the logistics of going pro and what that meant in your day-to-day life? No, I I didn't. And my plan was just to like, just keep moving forward and see where it led, see what happened, understanding that I would figure it out. I didn't quit my day job. Mm -hmm. I kept going to work. I just kept showing up for races and trying to find more information, mentorship, whatever was out there. And to be quite honest, at the time, there wasn't much, especially for Americans. And there still isn't a whole lot, but there is way more guidance, I think. I mean, at the time, they were just starting to really accept women into cycling as a Mm -hmm. thing that needed to be nurtured. And so that was a huge initiative of like more women in cycling, supporting more women in bike racing and all of that. But, you know, as per usual, the women of color or black women conversation was not being had by anyone. And so I'm like, hey, hold on now. (laughs) Don't forget (laughs) about us. Don't go away. Coming up next, we get into the nitty gritty of breaking down barriers in the cycling community and Ayesha's vision for making the sport more inclusive and affordable. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Let's get straight back to it. I'm in London specifically, so that's actually quite a big active cycling community however the diversity of the cycling community that exists here is still very squarely white men we call them mammals middle-aged men in lycra there's a lot of that increasingly i am seeing like more women on bikes just like generally across the board and then you see a lot of women just cycling to work or they've also got their lycras and then less so black women like i think if i pass a black woman on my commute i'm like It's like a a rare unicorn sighting. It just doesn't happen. And I think even as I'm cycling around, there are like little black girls look at me like, there's a black woman. Like Mm -hmm. you can tell like there's like a eye widening moment of like, what? I'm curious from your perspective, especially being an African-American, like what are the barriers for women in cycling in particular, but also for black women in cycling? What I have noticed is that there are quite a few black women 
cycling, but they're not necessarily as visible. There's been a lot of like smaller clubs forming and organizations. We have tons of major tailor clubs around the country, which is really nice. But even amongst African-American people, it's still more men than anything. So maybe you don't have as many white men in those clubs, but you'll still have quite a few men leading the charge and dictating how the community is driven forward. And so now what we're seeing post-pandemic is that a lot of people have kind of ventured into cycling and you're getting more women leaders, more women of color leaders. And it's really awesome because they're bringing in more Black women, more women of color and like creating that space that they wanted and they needed because they understand what that means. I think there's just so many different things that we don't know about that we don't even know what our thing is. And I think that's a question of access and exposure and also money. Yeah. Super expensive. <laughs> I was going to ask about that, actually, because you said you built your first race bike. As you were saying that, I was like, I can't tell if this is a cost effective way of doing it or a more expensive way of doing it. But what were some of the upfront costs that you had to make when building your first bike? And then I guess, like, what are the costs and implications of trying to take this forward? The cool thing about track bikes is they have way less pieces. I also was dating someone who worked at a bike shop, had a lot of friends in the community. And so lots of trading and connections and hustling and like figuring out. And I also had a job, like a full-time job. And so I could theoretically support investing a little bit into my hobby. That's not the case for everybody. But then once you get into road bikes, it can get super astronomical. That was definitely a barrier. When I first started road racing, I didn't own a race bike. And so I had to acquire one. And I didn't build that one from the ground up. I bought it, but I didn't have the money. So I put it on, oh, <laughs> I put wow. it on layaway at the bike shop. And just by luck, I was at work. I was a preschool music teacher and they decided to use the school where I worked as a location for a bank commercial. Oh, nice. <laughs> and they needed one more person to be in the commercial. I was there and they chose me to do it. And I literally smiled in this bank commercial for like half a second. (laughs) And it was enough to buy my bike. Nice. I love that. (laughs) I think cost is something that is a huge consideration, certainly with cycling. I mean, my first bike, I got it on Groupon. It was like 150 pounds. It served me well. I had it for three years. It technically still runs, but I had a baby. And so I was like, oh, I need to put my baby on the back of this bike. I'm going to get a a slightly more... (laughs) (laughs) A slightly more stable bike. I personally find what I have seen of the culture (laughs) here is just, there's just so many men. The women are out there. I know that they are there. It's just, yeah, like that doing that digging and doing that work or finding people that are just visible enough to me that it can open up that world. That just, that part just hasn't happened yet. I think this conversation is actually quite helpful because when I found out about your organization, A Quick Round Fox, I was like, this is great. I need, like, where's this here? I need this here <laughs> because it's just about finding the right tribe. And I feel like then I'd be on that recreational aspect of cycling will then unfold for me. In terms of your pro career and the people around you, you said your now husband also into bikes and cycling, your family also supportive and generally pleased with the direction of your career trajectory so far? Yeah, I think everyone's super proud. My mom started riding bikes. Amazing. Just for funsies. I got my grandma to ride with me on a tandem, which was really cool. Like everyone is super supportive within my family, but they've always been like that. I love that. Support is important. Not all families are like that. I want to talk a little bit about the advocacy work that you do. What led you into the advocacy work? Could you describe what that looks like and the impact it's having? So 
I think I got into advocacy by chance because I was trying to save money. The same reason I got into bikes. When I was living in Jamaica Plain, which is an area just on the edge of Boston, there is a bike shop there called Bikes Not Bombs. It's still there. And they, at the time, had adult instructor training. And it was a program where they taught you how to do bike mechanics. And in turn, you agreed to volunteer for one session of their youth program where you taught kids the bike mechanics, like how to build a bike. And I was like, well, this sounds like a great way to not have to pay somebody to fix my bike. So I (laughs) will do it. (laughs) And so I did this, but it was not just how to fix a bike. It was like how to like work with people and how to advocate for people, how to communicate with people. We learned a lot about all the isms and discrimination against them, like adultism and racism and all the different ways people can be awful to one another. But since we were working with the youth program, they wanted to make sure that we weren't going to like make the kids feel really small all the time and tell them they couldn't do anything. (laughs) And I feel like Maybe I've been always an open type of person, but it's always nice to have that. Oh, yeah, this is a thing that people do, like just being aware of your personhood and your privilege and all of the things, which it was very comprehensive. And it was a super diverse group of adults. It was also a really diverse group of people who worked at the bike shop. And I also appreciated that it was led by a previous youth that went through the program like he was an adult at that point but he had gone through the program and then had become the executive director of this nonprofit. and it was like it was like a really cool thing so I think that was my introduction into advocacy and also just riding a bike and just just seeing how (laughs) messed up things are you naturally become an advocate because it's literally your safety on the line. Like yeah. your parents are nervous for you and they have a good reason. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> it's, not, it's not the safest form of transport. And so from there, you know, I just met so many interesting people that I kept finding myself in these different cycling circles. And so when I moved to Brooklyn and I became part of that We Bike NYC group, I met even more people. And that group did a clinic with Achilles International at the time. And they still have Achilles International where they run with people with disabilities Mm -hmm. and there was a bike part of that where you had tandem bikes so you ride with people with disabilities most of the folks were visually impaired and I started working for them it was just so much fun I loved riding tandem bikes I loved connecting with people I learned a lot about the world we rode in Central Park every week and so just in the nature of that place specifically I just encountered so many different people and saw so many cool things and eventually decided I was going to, you know, specifically advocate for Black women in bike racing because that was the thing that I'd gotten myself into next. And, you know, I needed someone to advocate for me. So I was like, well, I'm going to make space for myself and as many other folks as possible. So nice. And in terms of the work with Black women, how's that going? I think it's going pretty well. I don't know that there's an end in sight yet, but over the years has morphed into many different things. And so now my big thing is the Abundance Project. And basically I provide support to women who are interested in bike racing. We're on our third year of the program. We've just selected our recipients for our mini grant program, which allows a couple of women to race bikes at a one of the biggest bike races in America, which is really cool. It's a multi-day Criterium race, and you guys know what Criteriums are now. And it's just a great way to try, try, try again, because with stage racing, which is also multi-day road racing, 
usually if you don't do well or finish the first day or whatever day, you can't keep going. But in these criterium series, they're all independent. So there is an omnium, which means that there is a competition for overall doing better than everybody else over the course of the entire series, but they're all individual races. So if you don't do well one day, you can show up again the next day. There's no requirement to finish to show up again. So you have multiple opportunities to try this thing and get better at it. I think that's the the key thing is that it is about fostering where people are at and allowing them the space and the grace to go try don't like that cool don't do that again <laughs> like yeah. and I think there like, isn't yeah maybe not for me and that's fine I love that and I do I think actually of the people that like allow for risk-taking I find that black women or at least people from underrepresented groups have a little bit more grace and space for people to just try something out because we know that those opportunities to take risks and fail yep. or just not succeed in the way that we think we're going to succeed just don't exist for us there's just not enough resources to allow us that space so thank you for creating that space the question on my mind right now actually is what are you working on getting better at right now in this moment i am working on getting better at understanding what rest looks like i'm so bad at it and refining my confidence i had a major surgery last year i had fibroids in my uterus which unfortunately super common for black women I have three yeah so they took out 12 wow it was a huge problem it was blocking my intestines which is the reason that it became a huge problem I couldn't poop (laughs) Wow. and it's really not optimal as an athlete got this huge opportunity to race in the world tour and I was so excited and then just wasn't going well I never felt good I couldn't figure out why and then you know that was why. And so now I am recovering from that and it's taking longer than I want it to take. It's much harder than I want it to be. Basically, I had a C-section. I didn't have any kids, but I delivered 12 fibroids. And so they cut through my abdominal muscles and I had to heal from that. I'm still healing from that. And I'm a super impatient person when it comes to myself. I think I can be patient with other people, but not me. And I'm also the kind of person that's always been such a high achiever that it's hard being bad at something. And I know how that sounds, but I am being sincere. I I fully hear you. (laughs) Like so deeply and spiritually. Before this podcast like became what it is today, I was like, this is the podcast for high achievers. And we just we just do not know how to function at like not doing well. So I hear you. I really do. Yeah. So basically my brain has decided that it doesn't care what I want. And until I figure out how to rest and be patient and allow space to exist as a mere mortal, it's not going to do the things I want it to do. So that's what we're working on. Just understanding that it's okay (laughs) to be where I'm at. Thank you for being honest about the fact that like, you know, it's still a struggle, but you're working on it. (laughs) And that's all we can do. But give yourself grace, be kind always. And eventually, I think it's because we have these self-imposed deadlines in our minds that actually don't mean anything but like the thing that we want to do will still be there when the time comes to do it but something is telling us that it won't be there but it will be and it'll be okay so the final question is what is the best advice you've ever received and what is the worst advice you've ever received I feel like it's probably something my grandma said she always tells me to stop worrying about things I have no control over which is probably the best advice for anybody. Like you can't will your way through everything. Mm-hmm. And I do try. So yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably the best advice. The worst advice. I don't know if 
anyone has ever like explicitly said it, but I feel like often the world tries to make anyone else feel ashamed for being ambitious or being audacious in any way when it comes to spaces and places where they're not traditionally found. Mm -hmm. And so I think the worst advice is for people to stick to the rivers and lakes that they're used to, right? If you want to be somewhere and you want to go do something, go for it. Try it out. If it's not for you, you will discover as much. And if it is, you will also discover that. And I think cycling is not a space that was made for me, but it is a space that I want to be in because I enjoy it. I love that. Thank you so much, Aisha. This has been wonderful. I found it fascinating to learn more about you and what you're doing and the amazing work that you're doing to help other people progress in this. And I feel like I'm probably just going to like tap you up and be like, I entered a race. I did it. I feel like one day there's also (laughs) women of color communities and groups in London for sure. It's out there. We'll connect you with some folks. Amazing. Please do. Thank you. I would I would really appreciate it. Wow, what a powerful journey Aisha has shared with us today. From cycling as a hobby to breaking records and creating a platform for representation, Aisha's impact on the cycling world is truly inspirational. To learn more, visit aquickbrownfox.com. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Wannabe. If Aisha's story has inspired you, why not share it right now with your friends, family, and anyone you think will be inspired? Let's spread the tales of resilience and triumph far and wide. And don't forget, follow us on your favorite podcast player and, of course, on Instagram at contentisqueenhq. Until next time, bye. This is a Content is Queen production, hosted and produced by me, Imriel Morgan. Editing by Joseph Perry. Sound design by Amber Miller. Production assistant was Sharai White. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 